Well, so good to be together, and I also just want to thank the Lord that we have some, of course, the Miles family back. We have Joy with us this morning. We have the Brionises um, and the Walks with us, So, and the Greens back after being gone on maternity leave for three weeks. So, and, uh, and a little olive with us this morning. So many gifts. What a good thing. Thank you, Lord Jesus. All right. Well, we're going to continue in our um, text from last week. So let's stand together and read together. You follow along as I read from Exodus chapter 34. Verses 6 and 7 say, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third in fourth generations. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So uh, as I thought again about this text, um, I found myself asking the same question that I asked over and over again as I came to this text months ago, and that is, why consider the heart of God? What, what's the point here? What does it matter What are we really trying to do in this exercise? And I want to say to you that I believe that considering the heart of God, not just today, not just last Sunday, not just in a few days from now, but over and over and over again over the course of our lives is critical to our flourishing as believers. Because when we don't trust his heart, we don't come to him openly. We don't come to him um, reflexively for the help that we need in our struggles. And, beloved, we need his help. Whether we realize it or not, we need his help. Once again, I want to read to you from the book that Earl referenced earlier, Gentle and Lowly, because Ortland helps us to see what it is that animates our skepticism about the heart of God and about his favor for us. Listen to what he says. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, but it also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that causes you to go there in the first place and keeps you skeptical toward him in the wake of it. You see the point? We said last week that the most important thing about us is what we think about God. And that's why we want to not miss the point that we don't naturally think rightly about him. We naturally suspect him. We think about him based on what we think about ourselves. I want us to see the heart of God for us, particularly when we sin and when we struggle, because it's then that we most often doubt 
whether we can really trust him, whether he really is giving us what is good. But as Jeremiah says, he rejoices over us to do us good with all his heart and with all his soul. So then, why this text? In this story, we see some very important things about the heart of God for his people. Even when they sin grievously in the matter of the calf, the golden calf, what we, what we see about God in this text flows into every area of our lives. It gives us great assurance that he is for us. What do we see in this text? Well, number one, we see how faithful he is, even when we don't trust him. That's what was going on in the, in the story. God was faithful to Israel even though they didn't trust him. We see how he delights to show mercy even when his justice provokes him to anger. And it, and it certainly happens. We also see how he hears and responds favorably to the intercessory prayers of a righteous man, Moses. We see how he desires to stay with his people on their journey and to pardon their sin and to make them his own. And as the story of God's heart unfolds throughout the Old Testament, it provides a framework for us to see how in the New Testament, the truest picture of God's heart is revealed in Christ, the perfect picture of the heart of God. And I hope to make some of those connections for us this morning from the text. So just by way of review, last week we saw the first three things that God proclaimed about himself from the mountain. The first one was that he is compassionate, or it could also be understood as merciful. And we saw how this word in the Hebrew is the word rechem, which is the word for womb, and it conveys a deep emotion that is it's centered on the core of a person. And we would imagine the feelings of a mother for her vulnerable infant. And it also contains action, not just emotion, but action. And we see the action, for example, when God hears the cries of the Israelites suffering under slavery, and his heart is drawn out to them, full of compassion, and he rescues them. And then the greatest example of compassion, of course, was when our Lord Jesus came on the scene, and he was tender and full of compassion as a human, suffering the same kinds of afflictions that we do. The second word that God used for himself in Exodus was gracious. It's the Hebrew word ken, which is often translated delight or favorable. Examples of those would be in the Psalms, when the skilled poet is said to have lips of ken, lips of grace, or a dazzling piece of of jewelry, which is an ornament of grace. These are the nuances of the word that God uses for himself. And the strongest expression of grace is always shown when someone receives favor instead of receiving what they really deserve. For example, when Esau, when Jacob comes to Esau after 20 years running from his deceitfulness, and he says to his brother, may I find grace in your eyes. No one in the Bible shows more grace than God. These Examples are only shadows of the truest, purest expressions of grace. 
And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is God's grace, his charis, gracious gift, become human. And then the third expression of God is that he is slow to anger. And it's a complex Hebrew phrase that literally means long of nose. And last week we saw how that, it's a, it's a metaphor that um, contrasts the common way of saying that someone is angry. It was, it was basically to say that their nose burns hot, describing how your face gets hot when you're angry. When you're, and this is why a person who is patient is called long of nose. Um, it takes a long time for their nose to get hot. Well, God doesn't have a long nose. He doesn't have a nose particularly at all. But he is slow to anger, which means that he gives people lots of time to change. So in Romans, when God's anger is being revealed against human evil, it also says that God is patient, giving people time to come to their senses and to change. This is our God, slow to anger, long-suffering. So we move on to the two final words that God uses to describe himself in Exodus. But before we do, I want to hit on a couple things that I thought about this week that I feel like were, in my mind, questions, and maybe there are questions in your mind as well. The first one has to do with this struggle that I have when I, when I see God dealing with Israel, and I find myself thinking, well, who are these people anyway? I mean, are they, am I to be, do I think of myself when I think of see God dealing with Israel? Um, in what sense does God's dealing with Israel correlate to God's dealing with the church today? It's, it's complicated and sometimes confusing. So I hope this helps a little bit, at least. Um, when, we, when we think about Israel, who, what do we see? When we hear God saying things like, they are an obstinate people, let me alone that I may destroy them. Wow. Why would he say that? I thought these were his covenant people that he loves. So... We need to understand that God does love his people, Israel. He, he chose them out of all the nations of the earth to bless them and, and through them bless all the nations of the world. Even though many of them as individuals, probably the vast majority of them, were not faithful. But he made a covenant with the nation. And at the same time, he also deals with them as individuals according to their faithfulness. And he punishes according to sin. So think of Abraham. Um, God called him out to trust him and to lead him and bless him and make him a great nation of people. And he rewarded him according to his faith. And God even said that because of his faith, he was righteous and he called him his friend. So throughout the Old Testament, we see God calling Israel to be faithful to this covenant that he made with him and then blessing them or punishing them as a nation according to their faithfulness as a nation. But yet the nation is comprised of individuals, so we see God dealing with individuals according to their faithfulness. It's like Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, that those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. So it's important to keep in mind that we have this larger group of people who are called called to faithfulness, but only some, some that the Bible sometimes calls the remnant, are the truly faithful. These are the ones who are objects of God's compassion and loyal love, while the unfaithful receive justice and wrath. And this is the same distinction that Paul makes in Romans when he contrasts vessels of uh, fashion for glory 
as compared to vessels fashioned and fitted for wrath and destruction. So who are the people in Exodus 34 that God is, has in mind when he says, I am compassionate and gracious? As a nation, they were God's covenant people whom he loved. But as individuals, they were largely obstinate and unfaithful people who eventually received God's just wrath and condemnation. But among these, there were a few, a remnant, who were faithful and received God's mercy and forgiveness. And we don't want to think of this as like God targeting, like God saying, I'm going to show mercy on you. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is slow to anger. This is who he is. So it's like a rainstorm. God's grace is pouring down. It's only those who move underneath it that become the objects of his grace. They're the ones that receive the blessing. Those that choose to stay outside suffer loss, great loss. And it's the same with the church. We have all the warnings in Hebrews because within the church, God called a peculiar people to himself. But we know that within the church, there are those that aren't faithful. They don't truly believe. Hence all the warnings to not turn away from Christ. Not look anywhere else because there's, there's only death outside of him. Well, another point I wanted to think about is um, God's presence. Because in this text, in the broader text of Exodus 32 through 34, we have this theme coming up over and over again about, is God going to stay with us or not? God himself says at, some, at certain points, I'm, I'm done with you people. I'm leaving. I'm not going to stay with you anymore. I'm going to let someone else lead you. And why does that matter? What's, what is the issue? What's the, what's the point of God's presence being with them and by application with us? In the Bible, when God is present in a particular way or in a particular place, he can be there to bless or he can be there to sustain, or he can be there to curse or to punish. These are different ways which God shows up in his presence in in the Bible. Most often, when God shows up, he's there to bless. And so to have God's presence with you was an assurance that you had his favor or his blessing. Here's some examples of that. We start out at the very beginning in Genesis. What do we see? God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, communing with them. He's right there with them. They have his intimate fellowship day in and day out. But then, of course, that changed. And God's presence left them when they were driven from the, from the garden. We see God's presence with his people as they journey through the wilderness, as we've been discussing. But then we also see the, their, their terror, the thought of God leaving them. Um, we see God's presence showing up in the Ark of the Covenant in a special way. It was a visual symbol that reminded them of God's covenant to live with them and to bless them and to protect them. And then we see their horror as a nation when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistine army and taken away. And they thought, oh no, we've lost our God and, uh, because it represented God's presence. We see examples of David um, saying, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We see the example of the Shekinah glory leaving the temple uh, at a certain point in their history, and this marked the end of God's perpetual presence living with them, abiding with them in the temple. In the New Testament, 
we see God saying through the angel to Mary that Jesus would be called also would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we see Jesus saying to the disciples like Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus being with them was God with them. We see Jesus saying to the disciples um, in the Garden of Gethsemane that, or in the upper room that he was going to leave, but he was going to send a helper, the Spirit, who would be with them and teach them everything they needed to know about God. At the end of the age, we see in Revelation uh, 21 that God will once again dwell on the earth and be with his people in a special way forever, never to leave again. So that's kind of an overview of seeing this issue of the presence of God was a very important thing all through Scripture. It says in Psalm 1611 that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. So what we want is the presence of God. We want him to be with us. To be away from God is death. And that is the ultimate understanding of what is going on in the world right now as God has brought in the the principle of corruption, because he has left the world to itself and it's dying, it's perishing in sin and at the absence of God's um, abiding presence. And one other point I wanted to think about before we get back into the text, and that is the name of God. On the mountain, God says to Moses that he's going to declare his name. What's the significance of God's name and what's the, the value of identity? Um... God said to Moses, I know you by name. Well, names were very important in the Hebrew culture. Not so much in our culture today. You know, we pick names for our children for different reasons. Sometimes we'll name them after a relative or sometimes we'll name them after something that's important to us. But not in the way that happened in the Hebrew culture where someone's name had this deep meaning about, that, about them. Your name conveyed something very significant about you. For example, when God changed Abram's name to Abraham because he was going to be the father of a multitude. And that's what Abraham meant, father of a multitude. And he changed Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess, because, it says, out of her will come kings. That's the meaning of Sarah. So God's name in the Hebrew scripture um, was not to be pronounced, not to be spoken by the Hebrews because they, they believed it was so holy. But in the uh, we would pronounce it Yahweh. It comes from four Hebrew consonants that have no vowels. But when we fill them in with a pre- a presumed vowels, it would be something like Yahweh. And translated, that means I am. And the idea of that is that God is self-existent and eternal. So to say I am, it's kind of like there's nothing left to be said because he is, there's nothing that he needs, he's completely self-sufficient, and he's always existed and he always will. Short form, I am. And interestingly enough, as I'm sure you've all heard, that this is the same word that Jesus used of himself when he said to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he was declaring his eternality. 
And because Jesus, because of Jesus' humility and obedience to the Father, he's been given a name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So when Moses said, when God said to Moses, I have known you by name, he was affirming his covenant faithfulness to Moses. Just like he says of Israel in Isaiah, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Well, getting back to Exodus 34. Again, we see God saying, change the slide here. He declares to Moses on the mountain that he was abounding in steadfast love. What is this steadfast love that he proclaims to Moses? This is a phrase. Um, it's a phrase in Hebrew that's translated by a word, kesed, but it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment. Love, generosity, and enduring commitment. And it describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that's motivated by deep personal care. Think of the story of Ruth. Ruth was a foreign woman who was married to an Israelite man. They went off to Moab because of a famine. And while they were there, tragically, her husband dies, um, along with his brother and his father. And she's left alone with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi had nothing to give her. And Naomi felt that Ruth should go back to her people, but Ruth promised to stay with Naomi and care for her. And as other people watched Ruth, keeping her promise over time, they called it an act of loyal love. Notice that Ruth's love is not conditional. It's not based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character she just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. And this is Kessid, loyal love. Um, Ruth's love is inspiring, but the one who shows the most loyal love and enduring commitment in the Bible is God. Think about the story of Jacob, who's a treacherous liar, even to his own family. And yet despite that, God chooses him and reaffirms his covenant promises to him. And 20 years later, when Jacob realizes just how undeserving he is, he says to God, I am not worthy of your loyal love. And he's right. He was not worthy. But God's love was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's loyal love continues in the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, when they're enslaved in Egypt and they're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them to the promised land. And this is called his loyal love because it was about God keeping his word. So God is loyal and he's loving for no other reason than that he is God and that this is who he is. 
after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still keeps his promise in a dramatic way by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate expression of loyalty and love. Can you see the loyal love of God's heart in these pictures? Can you translate that to yourself and see that because of Christ, God's love to you is unswerving, it's unwavering, it's utterly devoted. Can you see that? That is my prayer, is that we would see that. The last word that God uses to describe himself in this text is faithful. The faithfulness of God. It's the Hebrew word emet, and it's translated faithfulness or truth, and it relates to the word amen, which is an untranslatable Hebrew expression that means that's the truth. If you ever had the privilege of being in a church of other ethnicities, sometimes you hear much more verbal expressions of things like, say it again, amen, and preach on. That's the kind of thing that, we have, that we're talking about here. It's an expression of faithfulness. When this word is used of people, it refers to um, reliability or stable character or trustworthiness. For example, like Moses, when he appoints leaders in Israel... They were to be faithful men who are trustworthy, who won't take bribes or distort justice. Faithful. And the very first person that we meet in the Bible who considers God to be trustworthy is Abraham. God makes a promise that Abraham and Sarah are going to have this huge family. And that through them, all the nations of the world would experience God's blessing. But Abraham and Sarah... They are really old. And they haven't been able to have any children. And yet, in the face of these challenges, Abraham believes God, and he considers God trustworthy to, to make a way forward, to make it possible. And so God, he does show faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah. And in just four generations, their descendants form a whole nation called Israel. And God invites Israel, as a nation, into a trusting and faithful relationship with him. And when God leads them out of slavery, they trust God. Same word, faithful. They're faithful to God. But of course, it's God himself who is the most faithful and most trustworthy person ever. And that's why Moses calls God a rock, saying that he is faithful, just, and upright. But when the Israelites come to the promised land and they find it filled with giants, what happens to their faith? It tanks. It fails. But eventually, we find a, an Israelite who is faithful, and he does trust God in the face of giants. And who would that be? You guessed it, David. David walked in faithfulness before God, and he considered God faithful, and he responds to God's faithfulness. And so God raises up a faithful descendant of David, whose kingdom will endure forever. 
and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful king who will become the source of faithfulness to all of us forever. That's why Paul says in Romans 15 that Jesus came on behalf of God's faithfulness. Can you see the faithfulness of God in these pictures? Can you see God's faithfulness enduring through generations of people throughout Scripture? And can you see God's faithfulness to you in the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful one who came to show us God's faithfulness? My heart's prayer for us this morning is that we would see these pictures and they would remain emblazoned in our minds and that we would be able to take the truths of God's heart for us into the hard situations that we go through. How is your heart responding to God right now when you think of his loyal love and his faithfulness? I think it would be good for us to take a moment and just assure our hearts and ask God to increase our confidence in his compassion, his grace, his patience, his loyal love, and his faithfulness to us. So if you would, with me, just take a moment and reflect on these things and ask God to help us. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never cast out. Jesus said, come to me all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sing with me a cappella, one verse of Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto He has gladly bound himself to us
in an unbreakable bond, Dane Ortland says regarding the faithfulness of God. And he continues, he will never throw his hands in the air despite all the reasons his people give him to do so. He refuses even to entertain the notion of forsaking us though we deserve to be or of withdrawing his heart from us the way we do to others who hurt us. Therefore, he is not simply existing in large-hearted covenant commitment, but he is abounding in it. His determined commitment to us never runs dry. Amen? Well, the text in Exodus 34 goes on to tell us some more things that are important for us to see. God says that he is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Wow. How deep does the heart of God go for us? This expression could equally be translated, keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations. That's how it's explicitly stated in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, where it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God's goodness shuts off at generation 1001. This is God's way of saying, there is no termination date on my commitment to you. You can't get rid of my grace to you. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness because my heart is set on you. That should bless our hearts. That should secure our hearts in God's commitment to us. But then he goes on to say something else. It's very difficult. And I want to walk us through this and help us see what this means and how that it doesn't undermine everything else that God has just said. How do we what do we deal with how do we deal with this text where God says, but the big but that you've been waiting for. who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Wow. Not only is he going to go after your children, he's going to go after your grandchildren too. What's he saying? There's some key points that we need to see in interpreting Exodus 34, verse 7. First of all, the third and fourth generation, it's an idiom. It means whatever number. <clears throat> and that's, this number is in contrast to the loyal love that he has for thousands of generations. Notice the difference. God's love and faithfulness is to thousands. His retributive justice is just to a few. Which number would you prefer? 
the numerical disparity drives home the point that mercy triumphs over justice or over judgment, as James says. So this verse does not mean that God will punish an innocent, the innocent the innocent following generations for the sins of their parents. This is not what it means. There's some reasons for that. First of all, this interpretation would go against all of the other statements in the Hebrew Scriptures. For example, Deuteronomy 24:16 says, "Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers." And there are many statements, like the one in Exodus 34:7, that are recorded alongside statements about how each person in each generation is responsible for their own sin. Jeremiah 32, Exodus 20, and others. And the clarification of this command shows that the following generations are persisting in the same behavior. The problem is that successive generations go on committing the same sins that they learned from their parents. They're not blameless for simply having learned it from their previous generation, but they're guilty for committing the same willful acts. That's what God is saying here in Exodus 34.7. And this is why there are other restatements of Exodus 34.7 that clarify that, each, that the behavior of each generation is crucial to determine God's response. The disproportionate number is key to understanding the meaning of the statement. The lower number, third and fourth, is associated with God's judgment, while the thousands is associated with his covenant loyalty. And the result is a picture of God's character that shows liberal generosity that is endless. But this generosity generosity will not be at the expense of his justice, which will work itself out as much as is necessary. But it's clear in the statement that God's judgment is only the means to the greater end, which is his covenant loyalty. Does that help? Can you see how God's covenant loyalty is not undermined by his appropriate demonstration of justice? They're not, they're not contradictory to one another. But it is a struggle. So let me help us, try to help us with another way of thinking about this, another way of understanding the contrast between God's justice and mercy. And I'm going to draw deeply here from a section of the book by Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly. Some theologians of the past, such as Jonathan Edwards and the Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin, saw a distinction in the Bible between what they called God's natural work and his strange work. Let me explain what that is. Uh, Following the lead of Scripture, these men would call mercy what God deeply delights in and judgment his strange work. And they point to scriptures like Lamentations 3.33 where the prophet Jeremiah is pouring out his heart, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. And this is what he says. For God does not afflict from his heart nor grieve the children of men. God does not afflict from his heart. So Lamentations is taking us deep into the heart of God 
revealing what is central and natural to him. So we might say that in his, it is unnatural or alien for God to respond in a way that provokes him. You understand that? Ortland puts it this way. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that's going to be brought through that pain. That indeed is why he's doing it. But something recoils within him sending in sending that affliction. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. He's not a platonic force pulling the pulling heaven's levers and pulleys in a way that is detached from the real pain and anguish that we feel at his hand. He is, if I can put it this way, without questioning his divine perfections, conflicted when he sends affliction into our lives. God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He's sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin explains it this way. My brethren, though God is just, yet his mercy may in some respect be said to be more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God does show. I mean vindictive justice. In these acts of justice, there is satisfaction to an attribute in that it means and is even with sinners. Sorry, let me read that again. In these acts of justice, there is satisfaction to an attribute in that he meets and is even with sinners. There is a kind of violence done to himself in it. The scriptures so expresses it. When Isaiah announces the coming judgment of God on on Ephraim for their arrogance, a judgment that, according to Isaiah, would sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters would overwhelm their shelter, yet he says in Isaiah chapter 28 these words, For the Lord will rise up from Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused to do his deed, a strange deed, and to do his work, Alien is his work. There's something that is contrary to him. Like when he says, I desire not the death of the sinner. That is, I don't delight in it simply for pleasure's sake. When God exercises acts of justice, it's for a higher end. It's not simply the thing for itself. There's always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy to manifest that, it's his nature and disposition. And therefore, acts of justice are called his strange work and his strange acts. But when it comes to showing mercy, as it says in Jeremiah 32, he will rejoice over them to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. See the difference between God expressing his mercy out of his heart naturally because it's the deepest thing in him and God showing judgment when necessary, but it's alien to him. It's not his deepest heart. This is the point. 
One more quote that maybe will be helpful from Ortland. Some of us view God's heart as brittle, easily offended. Some of us view his heart as cold and uneasily moved. The Old Testament gives us a God whose heart defies these innate human expectations of who he is. We must tread cautiously here. All of God's attributes are non-negotiable. He does not have parts. But apparently, God is also complex enough to make distinctions both of judgment and of mercy out of his heart. Yet, at the same time, if we are to follow closely and yield fully to Scripture's testimony, we are walked into the breathtaking claim that from another deeper angle, there is some things that pour out of God more naturally than others. What I want to help us see is that left to our own natural intuitions about God, we will conclude the opposite. We will conclude that mercy is his strange work and judgment is his natural work. But when we let scripture rewire our vision of who God is, we see that judgment is his strange work and mercy is his natural work. Well, a few closing thoughts for us to think about this morning. When we come to the church, when we come to us today living under the new covenant, has God's heart changed from what we're seeing here in Exodus? When we think of the God of the Old Testament, we might be inclined to think of him as being harsh and austere, demanding and retributive. And when we think of the God of the New Testament in the person of Christ, we might tend to think of a more kind-hearted and understanding God, gentle and forgiving. forgiving. Why is that? Well, God has not changed, I can assure you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what has changed is that Jesus has come in flesh, And he has shown us the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's changed is that God has come closer. We can see him more keenly. We can see him more intimately. We see him suffering in human flesh. We see him relating to us in ways that we never could before. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So how should we respond? Well, if we look at the text in Exodus, we see how Moses responded. First, it says that Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So like Moses and John and Isaiah and others who encountered the unveiled Shekinah glory, this is the appropriate response, unabased worship. But you know, there's another aspect of worship, and that is delight. It's the overflow of joy and gratitude coming from our hearts when we realize that God's goodness is flowing toward us. It says in Psalm 36, you give them to drink from the river of your delights. So my encouragement to us is to drink deeply from God's goodness this morning so that 
just as we've contemplated these things this morning, will be delighted in our hearts. And our hearts will be inclined to express delight deeply to God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our response should be that of worship. Also, our response should be to trust. When God said these things to Moses, his response was, God, pardon our sin and our iniquity and take us for your own inheritance. That's a heart of trust talking. Moses believed that when God said that he would forgive their iniquity, transgression, and sin to a thousand generations, that God would do it. So what did he do? He asked God to keep his promise. We demonstrate faith in God when we come to him in humble confidence and ask him to do the very thing he's already said he wants to do, to give us the very gifts he's already promised to give us. After all, he has taken us as his inheritance. So go to him. Go to him and ask him to forgive your sin. Ask him to change your heart, to deepen your love, to increase your faith, to strengthen your obedience, and to expand your joy. Ask him. He wants to give you these things. Trust him to do it for you. And then out of trust flows obedience. That would be our next appropriate response. Moses said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, Lord, go up in the midst of us. So Moses' trust in God that was bolstered by what he just saw and heard on the mountain emboldened him to, again, resume his role as the trail guide and lead the people toward the promised land. He's ready to go. Knowing that God would now be with him. But remember, these were a stiff-necked people who had already made Moses' life miserable many times. But that didn't hold Moses back because love is the obedience of faith. And so Moses was determined to love them by leading them. So what challenges are you facing this morning? What are you being called to do? Who are you being asked to love? Remember, you found favor in God's sight. So ask him to go with you. Ask him to help you. And then get up and move out. Finally, the response should be that of rest. Moses said, If now I have have found favor in your sight, take us for your inheritance. And God said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. To be the object of God's favor and to have him as your father and to become the heir of all of the promises to you is the greatest security you can possibly experience. You are God's precious child, and he will never leave you or forsake you. You didn't do anything to earn his favor, and you can't do anything to lose it. So if you're struggling with confidence this morning in God's unswerving favor for you, take heart this excerpt from the Belgic Confession that beautifully articulates the heart of God and his governance over all things. It says, Nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father 
who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship so that no one, not one of the hairs of our head, for they are all numbered, nor even the bird can fall to the ground without the will of our heavenly father. So rest. Rest in him. He is for you. His favor is over you. His heart is for you. Rest in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for declaring your name to us and giving us every possible reason to be confident in your favor, in your care, in your faithfulness, in your loyal love, in your enduring commitment to us. Father, please don't let us leave here and the next time we trip up and sin in that same way that we've sinned so many times before, doubt you and question whether maybe this is the time that you throw your hands in the air and say, enough. Let us see you as being the God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, when we suffer anguish, pain, loss, fear, loneliness, uncertainty, help us to not think that it's because you've turned away from us, because in some way, We finally let you down too much, one time too many, and we've lost your favor. Help us, Father, to never think that way. Strengthen our understanding and our commitment to believe you at your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.